Welcome one and all. I'm Chris Stone, the Virtual Agile Coach, and this is the Virtually Agile Podcast, the pod that shares conversations with agile thought leaders, as well as amplifying newer voices. You'll hear about agility, virtual working, and everything in between. In today's episode, we talk about modern management challenges, some of the myths and pitfalls, as well as options for how to approach them. If you find value in listening, don't forget to follow or subscribe on your platform of choice. It's the best way to hear about the latest episodes as they land. Enjoy the show. Fellow Agilists, welcome to another episode in Season 3 of the Virtually Agile Podcast. And as you all know, on the podcast, we aspire for neurodiversity and the amplification of the voices seldom heard, as well as featuring established thought leaders. Today's guest is one of those established leaders, known as the Pragmatic Manager. A speaker, blogger, and author of 19 books and counting, I'm pleased to welcome Johanna Rothman to the show. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be here. It's a pleasure. Now, to those listeners who may not be familiar with your work, Johanna, please tell us a little bit more about yourself and your journey with agility. So I'm known as the Pragmatic Manager because I help leaders and teams figure out how to adapt their current practices to something that might be more agile, although it might not look agile in in name or or action um i find that when people know more of their options they are more able to figure out what to do i started off my professional life as a developer i moved into management back to development to testing back to development to management um i became a project program manager and a senior leader and then i started my own company and i've been using agile approaches things that look more agile than not since I started. What I realized is that most people did not understand these, what I thought were reasonable alternative ways to work, right? Instead of, I never bought the, the plan the whole thing before you start because every, every single thing in my life, I could plan a little bit and then move on to planning a little bit more. I needed to have the feedback to go into, um, to inform the next bit of planning. So I was not specifically agile, even at the time of the manifesto. And especially then, I thought, why are we not including managers? I didn't get it. So I I thought the agilists were nuts. Because (laughs) if you don't include the managers, if you don't include the people, create and refine the culture how can you possibly succeed so um i think that's that's where we are now in as we as we record this it's 2022 um and i think that most people realize we we need to do stuff at the team level we need to do stuff at the middle management level and we definitely need the senior leadership involved Excellent. So you've had a range of roles over the years. You've been involved in agile ways of working for, for quite a while now. And I guess this lends itself well to the books you've been writing. And in particular, uh, the one we're going to be speaking about in a bit more detail today is Modern Management Made Easy. And what I, what I love about this book, and by the way, thank you for giving me a free copy to peruse uh, ahead of this, this conversation. What I love about it is the way that you've framed it in terms of, right, here is a myth. Here is something, here's a challenge that modern management face. 
And here are some of the options that you have at your disposal that may help you with improving that situation. So what we're going to do now is we're going to tackle one myth at a time. I'm going to go for a number of these. You can tell me a little bit about the context for it, and then we can discuss some of the options that some of our listeners may find helpful if they are facing these, these challenges in their workplaces today. So starting with treating everyone the same way, a myth, right? So the, the traditional way of working used to be let's standardize our approach to everything. I firmly believe personally that all things people, when you're dealing with people, you can't just standardize because we're all, we're all, we all have our own desires, our wants, our needs. We're all different. different. We're, we're neurodivergent. We have different ways of learning. We have different ways of approaching things. So I'm a firm believer in customizing to the context, people, situation, culture, and that includes agile frameworks, methodologies, and otherwise. Don't just do this one size fits all. So you, you wrote this as a myth. Why is it important for modern management, do you believe? So think about, um, I, I am fortunate enough to have a small grandchild, but back in the earlier parts of my career, I had small children. And my bosses wanted us to, they wanted to give us um, dinners out in Boston. All I wanted was a nap. <laughs> the last thing I wanted was a fancy dinner out where I would have to get dressed up, find a babysitter, and stay out way too um, late at night. So that for me was not a reward. And if we think about rewarding people the same way, we have people who are not just exhausted as I did um, as I was with my small child and how my daughter is with her small child, but we have people who are very uncomfortable in loud settings. We have people who are not um, small talkers, right? They don't, they don't do the chat thing um, in person that well, although they can type very fast and very well um, and, and have nice um, relationships with other people. So I think it's, we can't just have one size fits all for the rewards that we have, but also for the interactions that we want in the teams. We can have a base of, we, we will always get together in real time for these kinds of activities. But the more we have, we must do everything the same way, the less useful that is. I completely agree. And I think one of the parallels that I am drawing as you, as you talk about this is the whole uh, remote working situation that a lot of us are facing today. So a lot of companies, they were forced to pivot very quickly to working remotely. And then as they gradually started thinking about bringing people back as, as the, the situation changed with the, the pandemic, there was then a resistance because ultimately people have learned that, hey, I've got a preference. And so my preference might be, I would like to be in the office. And my preference might be, I work better from home. And my preference might be, I like a hybrid. I like a mixture of those two. And I think a lot of companies have fallen foul of saying, right, we've got this one size fits all, just everyone back in the office X days a week. But that doesn't necessarily work for the, the range of diverse people we have and their, their, their wants, needs and desires. So yeah, very interesting. So with regards to this myth, what are the, what are the options that you feel that, uh, that companies or, or people have at their disposal to avoid taking a standardized approach? So instead of thinking about how we treat everybody literally the same, how do we treat each person so that they, they can be most effective 
in their role. So if we take the example of when are people back in the office or not back in the office, why not let the teams decide? Mm -hmm. I mean, why, why is this so hard, right? Why do managers need to decide for teams? And the more, um, if we think about the rewards in the system, the more the manager can actually say, I have all of these options for how I want to reward people. So for example, I don't understand companies that don't have a book allowance. And this is not just because I'm a writer, right? This is because it's very easy to learn from books. You can have a book club with anybody in the office and it, uh, almost any time. And that is a very inexpensive way to learn. So why not do that? And that way, if you're not excited about sending people to a conference or people are not excited about going, you can still have the learning that you might get by, by learning together, which is, in my experience, the most effective way to learn. So why not think about how do we create an environment where we give the manager and the people the various tools that they need to actually reward each other well. I like that. So one of the things that I am increasingly a firm believer of is take a team and articulate a problem, right? The, or, or a challenge or, or an outcome we're seeking. We're trying to say, as a team, we want to learn more. We want to develop our expertise. How could we team do that? Which options do we have at our disposal? And then co-create, and it, and it could be someone wants to yeah learn from books. It could be, I would love to attend a conference. It could be, I would like this training course. But allow them to decide based on what works best for them, as opposed to it being top-down led, you are all going to go to a conference. You are all going to do this training. Now, there's actually a lot to be said for teams of people going to a conference together and debriefing at some point during the day, deciding what they will go to the next day. I... I have done that with several teams and it's really a great idea. However, it's not for everything. Yeah. As you said, some people don't like the small talk thing and, and being amongst a huge crowd of people can be a bit of an overwhelm. Some people prefer to digest information audibly. They're, they'll listen to a podcast out on a walk and, and some people like to see it visually and they like to be co-creating things and, and be very active and kinetic about things so yeah it's not a, not a one size fits all all right let's talk about the next one then so the quest for 100 percent utilization now i love this one in particular because i very recently shared one of my favorite visuals in the world for that exact challenge and what it depicts is a coffee cup and someone pouring lots of coffee into this cup and it just overflowing everywhere and it was a good analogy i have found for how Teams are often having to fill up their sprints as full as possible, 100% capacity. Now, I have very, very, yeah, right here on my desk, and it's not wine, I'm not getting drunk in the middle of a, a podcast, don't you worry. Two vessels, I, I love using this as an analogy, right? So if I, if I gave a manager two glasses, one of them full of water or another liquid, another one empty, and just said, right, this is your capacity for your team. This is how much they can achieve in a time frame. Just keep pouring. I guarantee every manager will stop as soon as it hits the top. And then you ask them, okay, so what about unknowns, right? Something new is going to come up. You're going to need to put that in. What happens? Are you going to pour that in and, and let it overflow? 
or are you going to walk along with it and bump into something and it's going to spill because that's that's what happens so capacity 100 capacity huge myth firm believer in it what are your thoughts so i actually wrote a blog post this morning and i will definitely give you a link to that the more full our our capacity is as individuals the longer it takes for us to finish anything and the more full and, and that's because we tend to start um, especially on the team every single person tends to start their own story um, they have to they have to wait for other people to be available for code review and for testing, um, the team almost never catches up, right? It's it's one of those things where it's very hard for a team to finish anything when they're full to capacity. So I think about this at the individual level, at the team level, and at the organizational level. How do we limit width so we have more, more slack in the system? We are seeing this lack of slack in the system right now with the pandemic and the supply chain. We have squeezed every single bit of cost out of the supply chain, which means in normal circumstances, we have reasonable slack for deliveries. However, we are not experiencing reasonable slack for deliveries right now. We are, we are seeing more appetite for more goods and services than we are able to deliver. This is exactly the same problem in teams, exactly the same problem in organizations. So the way to relieve this is to create more slack in the time so that we we are not trying to push more things. This is, this is one of the reasons actually I am not excited about iterations anymore. In iterations, you have a really hard time saying, how much room do I need for, um, for allowing interrupts, for allowing production support, for allowing for emergencies? Most of my clients cannot manage sprints. They have too many interruptions. However, they do work in cadences, and the cadence of everything is really quite useful. I agree. Having a, a rhythm, a heartbeat, uh a way of knowing when something roughly will happen and, and building in the the opportunity to know when you're going to reflect on progress via retrospective those you know that that sort of cadence very very powerful it's is it's what your your feedback loops are in your workflow that enable you to learn pivot accordingly adjust your approach and your trajectory and continuously focus on achieving and delivering value yeah so that's an interesting myth there uh, and i believe Another challenge, but I, I personally find this one, I'm, I'm awful at managing my own work in progress. As an agile coach, right, I go out and I talk to teams and I say, hey, you know, you've got you to manage your work in progress because you won't get as many things done. But then I take on too many things myself and then I go, Chris, slow down, take a breath. You're not building in enough, enough room. You're not building a slack in your own workflow. And the challenge is, and we were talking about it a moment ago with one of the other myths, if you don't have slack in the workflow, when are you going to learn? When are you going to pause and reflect? When are you going to be able to deal with these unknowns that you're facing, all these challenges, these interruptions? So yeah, huge, huge problem. I, I see it a lot with companies. What are the options then? So how, how would you recommend a manager begin to deal approaching a situation where someone is seeking that 100% utilization? 
So that's where I explain to people the myth of resource efficiency versus flow efficiency. Right? How do you how do you focus on the work through the system that's re, that's flow efficiency as opposed to how busy the person is? That's resource efficiency. When in resource efficiency, we focus down, we optimize down for the person. In flow efficiency, we optimize up for the work, up for the system. And when managers realize how different that is, they say, oh, I want the effects of flow efficiency, but I don't know how to do performance management, which I don't know if you're going to talk about that myth or not. But then I say, I don't think you need to do performance management. People need feedback. You need to teach the team how to offer each other feedback. But why do you need, but we are all adults. Why do you need to manage anybody's performance? Interesting question. One, yeah. one, for, one for HR to be answering to, I would say. It's, um, yeah, I, I, I don't believe in managing performance. Um, I believe, you know, give, give people the vision, the, the outcome you're trying to move towards and empower them to help solve that problem in the way they best feel they can achieve that with their skills, because they're, they're the experts, they know better than I. And then just create the environment where they can be their best selves. Don't need to individually manage their, their well, and, and not just their best selves, but their best selves inside this team, right? Mm. So not every team is for every person. Um, there are people I have worked with in the past where I've said, I don't really want to work with these people again. Not my cup of tea. We don't interact that well. But put me on another team, and I'm I I can enhance all of their work. So. Um, and I will take a little bit of issue with your notion of empower them. If you if you substitute the word trust for empower, now you know what your actions are as a manager. If you trust people to do a good job, you will give them the overarching goal. You will delegate the problem and the outcomes, right? Not just tasks. And now you say to them, what else do you need from me? to succeed here. Mm. And they will tell you either nothing or I need this, this, and this. And then it's your job to go out and get that, that, and that. And you are, you are right to challenge because empowerment is one of those, those buzzwords, isn't it? That people tend to use willy nilly. Um, and empowerment is not something you just, you just give people. It's, it's enabled for people by the environment you create. So as I said, trust them and that, that, that does eventually empower them. But don't, you don't empower people as such. And they don't need to be empowered. They just need to be given the right environment and then just get out of their way and let them do the good stuff because they know how to do it. And I like where you're referring to this, this evolving role of a leader here. In the past, it used to be, right, this is what we want and this is how you're going to do it. And nowadays, it's, right, this is the vision. This is what we're trying to achieve. And, yeah, you, you go and do it and just keep us abreast as to how it's going. Remain, maintain transparency but also flag the challenges, think the things that are getting in your way and we'll help you remove them. That servant leadership model. Another thing I think uh, was mentioned in your book here was around the whole multitasking challenge. So I think that one of the, one of the, or the language used in your book was about people don't multitask, I believe this because I can't do it. I often get people to, they, they tell me they can multitask. I tell them to stand here and 
hold their hands out like this and we're going to play in the left hand we're going to play rock paper scissors endlessly and my right hand we're going to do a thumb walk and see how you get on and it's just you, you, you can't think of both in parallel and i think you're the, the the wording in your book was fast switching right so people just pay micro focused attention on one task and then they move on to the next so are there any tips you have with regards to how to help teams avoid multitasking so this is where every team needs its own board right mm. i don't care what your managers say a lot of managers love jira because they think it's um they think it gives the manager enough insight as to what the team is doing um there's a lot that you can say about jira and i'm not going to go there however <laughs> i most of the time don't find that jira itself is sufficient to be transparent with all of the work and who is working on it. So for example, many years ago, I was in, um, in the Czech Republic or Slovenia. I was in one of those um, interesting uh, countries in, in Europe and they had a court board and they had everybody, they had all of the work on cards on the court board. And then they had initials on the cards. And I said, why are there several boards and several cards in progress where with the same initials? Are these the same people or do you have multiple people with the same initials? And they said, oh, no, it's the same person. So I said, you might do what a client of mine did years and years ago, back in the early 2000s. He actually had um, pushpins with a picture of the person on the pushpin. It was a larger pushman, and um, he only had one picture to put on every pushman. And when he ran out of pushmans for the people, then he could not add any more work to the board. So I said, instead of initialing the, the cards on the board, um, either, either say, we will only have a whip of one for every single person, or ask, add people's pictures to the pins and then see what happens. So they did that while I was there. And um, of course, there was a lot of you would cry. Yeah. And then they started to do that two weeks later and their throughput magically got faster. So they didn't have to have people working on multiple things at the same time. They could see what people were working on. The problem with fast switching is we are not computers. So we do not swap out what we, what, what perfectly, what was in our brains. We do not swap in back perfectly what we swapped out. And um, I know that even, I would like to say it's because I'm old. Yeah, it's not because I'm old now. It's totally a function of how much sleep I got and how much exercise I got. The more exercise and sleep I get, the healthier I am. The more work I have in progress, the less sleep and, and exercise I get. So it's a negative reinforcing feedback loop, mm. right? Well, it's actually a, a reinforcing feedback loop, but the, uh, the results are negative. So instead, how can I create a reinforcing feedback loop that gives me the results I want? And fast switching does not do anything useful except waste my time. So the more we have fast switching, the more time we waste, the longer the cycle time, the, the longer everything hangs around. It's a, that's a reinforcing 
feedback loop that does not give us the right results. I completely agree. Um, I've experienced this myself, taking on too many things in parallel, as I mentioned. The more I take on, the tireder I get. And then when I'm trying to do the next task, I'm tired and I'm, I'm not quite there. And then I start working one thing, my headspace is in that, and then I have to switch to something else. And then you've got to change out of that headspace and move into that one. And, and that causes inefficiency. And then it's even worse if you're handing over to other people in the process as well, because they, they, you, know, you might work on something, uh, stop working on it because another new priority comes along. By the time you come get around to it, you've got to get back into the headspace again. It's just it's very, very inefficient. There is a there's an exercise I like running uh, for virtual teams in particular. It's called the the virtual name game, and it's all about context switching and multitasking. And you get a group of people together, and you're on a on a, on a whiteboard, a virtual whiteboard, and you I typically get the most senior person in the room to be the developer. They're the person that everyone's asking for stuff to be done. And the the aim of the game is for that developer to write everyone's names. But the first round, it's he who shouts loudest or the person who shouts loudest. So a common situation, everyone's trying to get their thing done. And the other team members or the other people are just saying their name repeatedly. Chris, Johanna, Chris, Johanna. And it's just noise. And it's, it's difficult to focus. And you measure how long it takes for them to write everyone's name. And in the second round, you say, OK, this time you're going to try and get, make everyone happy. So what you're going to do is you're going to write the first letter of Johanna's name, the first letter of Chris's name, first letter of Stephen's name. And everyone's going to get a little bit of attention. But again, the consequences, things happen slowly. And in the third round, we are going to trust you. You know how to do it. You're going to get to choose whose name you do first. And the team are going to help you. They're just going to give you a name one at a time, maybe agree the shortest name first. And the consequences in the third round, whoever's that developer, one, headspace, much better. Oh, my God, that was exhausting. It's much better this time. And more things get done. And I, I, as I said, I like having the most senior person being the developer there so they get to feel what it's like to have that situation where they're constantly bombarded with new information, constantly being challenged to do other things so they understand what it feels like. And then that can be a, a way of just stimulating, right, this is what it feels like. What are we going to do differently to try and avoid this in the future? I really okay. like that simulation. Yeah, yeah, that's a big improvement on the one that I use. I might have to steal that from you. Because the simulation I use right now is write the letters across A to Z and write the numbers down 1 through 26. And the first time you do it, you just write the letters and then write the numbers. And then the second time, it's A and 1 and B and 2 mm. and C and 3. And because you have to constantly reset where you are, it's the same 26 letters and numbers. But I really like your approach better. Maybe, yeah. maybe we should do a little simulation trade-off and see which one yeah. changes senior management's minds first. Let's give it a go. Uh, so the template that I referred to there, that's available on my website. It's free. Anyone can download and access it and give it a go with their, their teams. There's, a, there's another one I've heard of or used face-to-face, -face, and it's, it involves getting a team in a circle. They give, get given an object, a ball, and they, they are throwing it to different people in the circle. Um, but every time you catch it, you've got to then say, like, a bit like you did, A, B, C, D, but then at uh, various intervals, someone will then shout out a word. And that means right now we're changing to another. So it's going to be now, now it's going to be letters and then it's going to be Roman numerals. And it just gets chaotic headspace wise. It's going to keep switching back and forth. Okay. Do so that's, that's that another. I, I, I need to ask this question because you're big on diversity. Do you find that doing a physical activity like that with a bunch of people in a circle is actually 
how does that work with all these um, divergent personalities? And the reason I'm asking is because I'm actually handicapped now. I had a, a an inner ear hemorrhage back in 2009. I use a roll litter. I still travel the world, right? My roll litter and I go everywhere. However, I um, if I have to catch something and I'm sitting down, I'm okay unless I have to balance one way or the other. And then I'm, I'm way too likely to fall out of my chair. And um, I really don't like to do that. So you don't have any, any pushback from people with that particular physical activity? I think I would gauge the audience beforehand. So you could you could customize that yeah. and make it not a, not not a throwing object. You could just have everyone in a circle and just say make it a, a turning left and right, you know, rotation anti-clockwise or clockwise, and you could adjust it so that when someone says this word, this random word like uh, Groot, baby Groot here, someone says Groot, and suddenly you're going to switch to the the next one, and it's there's no throwing involved. It's just you using your mouth and your head. And then you could even make it so that another word is thrown in to switch the direction of play. So you can make it more difficult and complex, but it's still still focused context switching, fast switching, mm -hmm. and again, inefficiencies. And how you can I always gauge how did it feel doing that round? You know, what was the what was the consequence? Right? Did we did we did we do it quickly? Did we make a lot of errors? Did we make mistakes? Every time we make a mistake, we're gonna go back to the beginning. So there's lots of ways oh, of doing that's... it in a way that yeah. yeah. There's lots of ways of doing it so that it is um enabling lots of people to be participating without discriminating. Okay. Yeah. Right. Another myth then, comparing teams. We see this all the time, especially in the agile world. So this is a situation where someone thinks, oh, this team's got 25 story points in this sprint, which means that team can also do 25 story points. And in fact, why is that one only doing 20? What's going on there? What are your thoughts on this one? Why is this a, a myth that you've added in your book? So this is an excellent reason to stop using story points. But even if you use cycle time, right? Even if somebody says, why is your cycle time five days and that other team's cycle time is six days, right? Or 10 or, or 20. Um, I think that it's everybody's base of what they're working on is different, right? If, if you had to work on my books without... Um, without being in my headspace, I'm not sure you could do it. And it's the same thing for a code base, right? Um, there's the essential complexity and the accidental complexity. And unless you are actually inside the code base, you cannot possibly know what's going on there. So you don't know if you actually have useful tests or if you have not so useful tests. And you don't know if the people on the team have the experience to do the work and the re and all of the resources that they need to do the work, as opposed to other people who have different resources and have different experiences. I, I just don't find comparisons any useful at all, because um, then all too often managers want to bring the comparisons down to the person, and then you get into um, rank and yank, right? That whole business of who do we keep in the organization? So it starts with story points of velocity or cycle time. It gets even worse when it gets to the person. So, I mean, if people are delivering the value that they that you need them to deliver, 
either look at the friction that they encounter. What? How can you reduce the friction so they can deliver more? Or what? What do they? What else do they need so it's possible for them to succeed? But they are probably doing the best job they know how. Yeah, unconditional positive regard. Everyone's just doing the best they can with what they have available to them, their skills and experiences, the resources they have, the situation at hand. And as you said, it's not an even playing field. You know, one team's code base is different to another. One team is comprised of maybe senior developers and, and maybe a few juniors, and one team might have more, more of a, a less experienced team with that particular area of the code if you're talking software. One of the scenarios I often refer to or analogies I give, as I say, right, an audience of people, we're all going to go run a 5K. Okay, so I can do it in 28 minutes. How about you? And someone will say, well, I've never run it before. I don't know. And someone will say, oh, I do all the time. I, I run, I run um, you know, 5K in 20 minutes because I'm a triathlete and things like that. I say, okay, great. So you can do it in 20 minutes. Can everyone else now do it in 20 minutes just because that person's estimated as such? That's, that's your velocity. Can I, can I suddenly scale to your velocity? No, I can't. It doesn't work that way. So uh, it's, it's such an interesting one. And, and I think the, the desire to compare probably comes back to that, uh, that I guess, that old Taylorism mindset of we'll, we'll try and maximize as much production out of the, 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 the workflow as possible. But that was dealing with knowns. That was, that was we have a, a, a raw material we're turning into something. And the timeframes for that were often quite fixed. But the problem is we're working with knowledge work and we're working with unknowns and we're working with things that and changing complexity. And, and it's difficult to, to estimate those. And as we say, the, the biggest thing is it's not an even playing field. We're not comparing apples against apples. One team is not another team. So talking about options then, how do we how do we move past this comparison between teams? If 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 you were talking to a manager in the world today and they were saying, Well, I'm being asked to compare between teams, what would your advice be to that manager, Johanna? So my advice is always to understand why. Right? Why and this is often from a senior leader. Let's assume that the senior leader is not uh, a horrible person. Let's assume that they have the best interests of, of everything in mind. And they're trying to balance the pressures of not enough revenue or customers wanting this or any of those other things. So I, I start with why, to understand what value this would bring to that senior leader. And then, when they say to me, it's often, I need to get more work done. I need to um, to make sure that we release all these features for this particular customer. Um, that's when I say to them, can I offer you an alternative that will get you more directly what you want rather than trying to measure teams? And if they say, no, I want to know what their velocity is, then I go, I just go to the teams and say, everything is, just make everything a story point of 100, right? Every every single story is 100, and only do five stories in an iteration, or three. And then you, you've given yourself some maneuverability. But I, I most of the time I find that senior leaders have pressures that we are not aware of. Mm -hmm. And if we can get those pressures out, we can do something about them. Comes back to that unconditional positive regard thing again. So if we if we take that that exact point and say, right, I'm being asked for X, I'm being asked for 
a report, I'm being asked for a comparison between teams. If we start with, hey, they're probably doing so for a reason. Either they've got their own pressures, they they have a they've got a performance, they've got a, a target to achieve themselves, or a, they're being measured for their performance, or they've got uh, shareholders to to appease, and they want to demonstrate that they're value and they want to prove themselves. They're probably just doing so with that in mind. They're not they're not intentionally trying to annoy, frustrate, or prevent people being successful. So start with that unconditional positive regard. Why is it that you're looking for this? And then help them understand what the other alternatives are, and maybe even just what the the consequence or focus on comparing between teams is, and how it can be detrimental. So yeah, very very good. I like that. Good good approach. Let's talk about. Estimates then, which is very, very close to what we were referring to here with regards to comparing teams and, and utilization. There is a myth around needing estimates to plan things. Why is this, why is this such a problem? So in, in terms of the project portfolio where I first encountered this, um, many, many years ago, my, I, was, um, I was a program manager for the program to save the company. I've, I've had that role several times and nobody asked me for an estimate of the entire program. They did ask me, when can we see something? And I would always say, is a month too long? Cause this is back in, this is starting back in the eighties and the nineties. And um, no, they would always say a month is a month is a good time. Seeing a demo inside of a month that, yeah, that would be really good. So that's what I used to do. We had a cadence of month-long um, finishing of work so we could demo. And what I found is that the more the more a manager, a senior leader wants certainty, the less we know about this entire product, right? So we're being asked to estimate stuff at the very beginning of the product of the project of the program or the product lifecycle. And we, we, we don't know enough to estimate anything. So instead, we, some people give bogus estimates. Some people say, I can use my previous cycle time to, to predict something. But why would we want to give you an estimate when we don't know? Instead, how much time would you like to invest? How much money would you like to invest before we stop? And you can say, I, w I want to invest a week of time or a week of a team's run rate and then see where you are. That will change what we deliver. So when we change the conversation from how much will it cost, how much time will it take, to how much, how much time and money do you want to invest, we change the conversation. Interesting flipping of the conversation as you said that. Uh, I love the, well, the, the the notion that you alter their perspective and just say, right, how much are you willing to invest? Let's think about it in a near term. It's not a huge, lengthy, months and months long commitment, but how much time are you willing to invest? And we'll invest that, we'll learn from it, and we'll adjust accordingly, right? We'll, we'll take that knowledge and we might amplify what we're doing because it's working really well. We might dampen it because it's not working as well as expected. And I find that, that de-risking for a manager, especially when it comes to the financial side of things, lands very well in my experience yeah uh, i also like to think of iterations experiment uh, iterations and sprints as experiments right they are 
what can we achieve in this time frame? Whatever, whatever time frame you are working with, what can we achieve as a team in that time frame? Because we don't necessarily know. We may have a sense of velocity, which might influence it a little bit and allow us to plan our capacity accordingly. And I know you referenced the use of cycle time. Cycle time can be used as a predictor, but not an, as ab not an absolute predictor, because again, we are working with unknowns. And I know there is the, uh, the concept of no estimates, which uh, some people are a proponent for, where you don't estimate at all, because that is a time sink. You can, I, think, I think your book actually does do some, some rough calculations where it says, if a team comprised of X number of people spend an hour a week estimating, you roll that up across X number of teams in an organization and, you're, and they're suddenly losing days and days and days and hours and hours and hours just estimating alone, for something that actually that doesn't add value estimating doesn't add value it doesn't it doesn't allow you to deliver things it doesn't get anything done but at the well, same time it's... go ahead go ahead it's often not enough information for managers to make a decision right mm. so even so i i see this a lot in teams that use quarterly base planning right they want to they want to plan for an entire quarter at a time and the problem there's nothing wrong with planning for an entire quarter, except you cannot take advantage of in new information during the quarter. And if you spend, in my experience, um, the three to four weeks, each team spends three to four weeks planning for the next quarter. You've lost a full third of that quarter to, to estimation and planning, which is not that useful for the next quarter. So that's why I really like to ask the question differently. Um, if you can see a demo, and uh, this is one thing about iterations. Back when we first started iterations in, you know, 80s, 90s, O's, I always used to ask the question, how much time are you willing to um, throw away? That's the duration of your iteration. If you need, if you need to experiment for a full month, and be willing to throw that away, which you might on a very large program to make sure that you're starting off on the right foot and you want to eliminate all kinds of other options, you might want to invest an entire month at the very beginning and say, we have 16 options right now. We really need to get down to three or four. That's an excellent investment of a month. But if you're, if you're supposedly working on one of those six to nine month projects that you think is, you know, roughly that large, certainly less than a year, certainly more than a quarter, then why would you have a month long iteration? And why would you plan for anything more than a few weeks at a time? The more, the longer you take in planning, the less time you have for delivering. And this is, um, I think a lot of managers understand that when you use words like that, right? When you say, I'm, I'm willing to spend half a day for planning for the next two weeks. But if you say, do you really want me to take three or four weeks out of this quarter to plan for something a full quarter in advance where we're not going to be able to take advantage of what we've learned? Do you really want me to do that? And it's that learning that's the, the key part. And I know, again, another thing that you and I have a very similar ethos on is rather than failing fast, learn fast. I think your, your book in particular uses that phrase 
learn early. Sorry, learn early was your wording. Uh, my own personal take on that has been learn fast, learn often. Because I, I have I have observed that when I speak with certain certain demographics, certain certain people, failure is a dirty word. It's stigmatized like no one wants to fail. Right. So if you reframe that instead to say, we don't care about failing, we just want to build in the processes or the, the structural way of working that enables us to learn quickly, learn often, so that we can use that new information and continuously course correct, ensure we are delivering the right thing in the right way. Mm-hmm. Right, Johanna, it's it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. We're, we're moving towards the end now. In a slight twist on the usual formats in, and in an attempt to diverse away from just retrospectives, what I often do on these podcasts is I ask my guests to add a new template to my backlog. So what I do is I create these themes, templates, usually retrospectives, uh, sprint goal canvases, anything really. The world is your oyster here. Just pick something at random that I can then create a new thematic way of doing agile in the workplace. Wow. So if I need to think about a way to do agile in the workplace, I'm going to start with managers. Instead of teaching teams how to collaborate, instead, and you should teach teams about technical excellence. That's always useful. But I would put in this canvas, how can we create an overarching goal for managers at the senior level to articulate managers at the middle level to work towards as a cohort, right? The more management teams we have, the more they work in the flow, the more likely we are to have an actual transformation. So that's the template I want for you. I want you to focus on management collaboration towards an overarching goal where people can build a safe environment. If they do that for themselves, maybe they will do that for the teams that they lead in service. Interesting. So my mind's going to some sort of management team alliance where we, we clearly understand the outcome we're heading towards and maybe some of the, the ways we're going to do that, the ways we're going to collaborate with one another to enable an environment for for safety, for innovation, for all these great things. Wonderful. Great addition to my, my backlog. Any final thoughts for our listeners from you, Johanna? I'm aware that sounds very Jerry Springer, but anything you'd like to share with the listeners? Um, if, they, if they're interested in this, in these kinds of topics, the Modern Management Made Easy books are out in ebook, print, and audio everywhere. Well, the audio is not on Amazon for a variety of reasons. No problem. Uh, the listeners ha- are now aware of those books. Do check those out if these areas are of interest to you. As you know, folks, we're always looking for new guests to appear on the show. So do reach out if you'd like to be involved. For one of the largest collections of templates on all things agility on the web, check out the website www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk. And if you prefer watching videos rather than audio, the at the Virtual Agile Coach YouTube channel is your place to go. As always, folks, don't stop believing. Thanks for being on the show, Johanna. Thank you so much. You've just listened to another episode of the Virtually Agile podcast. Don't forget to check out www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk for one of the largest collections of free templates on the web on all things Agile. If this show provided value, I'd love your support by following or subscribing on your platform of choice. See you folks next time.